Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 1. Continuing our new series uh, that we kicked off, I guess, uh, officially two weeks ago, but uh, really kicked off in earnest last week. Jesus for everyone, and the kind of series within the series is Christmas for everyone. And what we're doing is we're following the, the, the lead of Luke's gospel. We're following where Luke uh, lays the emphasis where uh, he kind of addresses the person of Jesus and teaches us the person of Jesus through the eyes of those who walked with Jesus, through the eyes of those who were ministered to by Jesus, through the eyes of those that had their lives changed by Jesus. Remember, Luke wasn't there with them. He wasn't one of the original disciples. He wasn't uh, he's not one of the apostles. He is a doctor. He has a mind that works analytically that way. And he's gone and done the research. And he's asked the eyewitnesses. And he says, hey, what is it, what is it that happened? What happened there? And so much of what we get here, I think, probably comes from Mary. Uh, it is her explanation of what she has experienced. And uh, today we're going to talk a lot about uh, Mary. And what it shows us is that, that, that Jesus, uh, his coming wasn't for one very specific group of people or specific class of people, but for all people. So that's kind of the emphasis right now uh, for the month of December as we go through all of this. Um, y'all ever see those puzzles, those, uh, the, 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 the pictures of puzzles, the which one of these doesn't belong type of puzzles? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, where, where you see those. I, for some reason, I always remember these as being like a favorite of busy work of my teachers, uh, was to do these kind of like math, which one of these doesn't belong type of thing. I don't know why it is that, that, that teachers feel the need to give so much busy work, but uh, they did. And for some reason, this is one um, that I remember uh, is, is this, this whole idea that there's a, a group that is there, and one of those doesn't belong within that group. And you've got to figure out which one doesn't uh, which, which one kind of alters from the rest of the uniformity of that group? In the Christmas story that we have here from Luke, uh, it would be really hard to play that game because, frankly, if you want to look at it and say, which one of these doesn't belong, it would be every single person that Luke mentions. Every person that Luke talks about, if you were to set the Christmas story, if you were to set the coming of a king uh, against Luke's story, then every one of them you could go through and you could be like, well, I, I can see a reason why this person doesn't belong here. I can see a reason why this person shouldn't be in here. I can see a reason why uh, this person doesn't fit the standard mold of what you would expect in this story. In some way or another, everyone that gets mentioned is in a place where it's like, I, that doesn't really fit what I would uh, expect. Something that makes them not belong. Last week we saw Zechariah and Elizabeth in the birth of John the Baptist, the one that would be the forerunner to Jesus' ministry. Now, in some ways, this might be exactly who you would expect to show up uh, in, in a story about the uh, anticipated Messiah's coming. Uh, in some ways, you would expect, because Zechariah is a priest, it says that he and Elizabeth were devout, and so, all right, that checks a couple of boxes that you would expect to show up if you were writing an autobiography of uh, of a coming king, and you wanted to start kind of with a little bit of the preamble, a little bit of the lead up, a little bit of, of what kind of leads into it, it would make sense so far that a priest would show up and that a priest's son uh, would actually be the one that would kind of kind of fit the, the bill to be a forerunner to the Messiah. 
he, he kind of, Zechariah and Elizabeth kind of fit the good guy religious mold that you would expect to show up there. But it's the way that they become connected that makes them not really fit the mold. They are to have a son that would be the forerunner to the Messiah. Now, if that wasn't extraordinary enough, they were well past childbearing age. So if you're going to send a messenger down to pick the, the, the forerunner of the Messiah, you'd think this forerunner would pick someone that, A, probably has some sort of royal lineage. Now, a, a priestly lineage, that, that's good too. But you would think that there would be some sort of royal connection there. And you would think that they would pick someone that is at least capable of having a child. And what we saw last week is that's not at all who they picked. And as we see repeatedly throughout the book of Luke, God seldom acts in ways that fit the mold. He simply doesn't do what we would expect. If you've been here at Providence for any time, you've probably heard me say something to that effect over and over and over again. Because frankly, that is all over Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament. It is a God who is doing things in ways that you do not anticipate and you would not uh, expect. From, from all the way at the beginning, from talking about Adam and Eve, to talking about Abraham, to talking about uh, Noah and then Moses, all the way through the, 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 the story of Israel and how God works in all of that thing. And now we get here to Christmas. Over and over the story is, I just, don't, I just wouldn't have thought God would have done it this way. So my goal this, uh, this, this morning, as we, and really kind of last week, and as we go throughout the rest of this month, my goal is that in this Christmas story, we look at parts of this story that we know so well. This is the challenge of, of, the, of the preacher, right? And even more than the challenge of the preacher, this is the challenge of you, the listener, who knows the Christmas story so well. I'd bet that most of you have a pretty good idea of everything that's going to be that I'm going to read today, that I'm going to talk about today. You probably have a pretty good idea of how the all the the characters in the manger scene, how they got there. You have a pretty good idea of the story, and so it can be real easy to kind of check out and be like, "Oh, I know this. I've heard this." And it can be real easy for me as a preacher to kind of mail it in and be like, they know this, they've heard this. Let's just get through the morning. But my hope is that as we get through each of these, that we, we begin to, 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 to kind of dive in a little bit and kind of push back against what we just kind of take for granted. If nothing else, push back against what you have almost subconsciously, what I have subconsciously kind of just assumed that this is normal. That somehow the manger scene is a normal scene. There's nothing normal about it. That somehow the, the people that are there is just how it's supposed to be. We've seen so many movies. We've read the stories. We've seen uh, the pictures and the illustrations and the paintings and the, uh, all the different stuff. Like it, it can be so easy to just kind of chalk up in your head that this is how it's supposed to be. But it's not how it's supposed to be at all. And so whenever you look at this, you shouldn't look at this story that we're about to read and the stories that we read here in Luke chapter 1 and 2 and say, yeah, that makes sense. In fact, whenever you read through this and you factor in historical realities mixed in with personal realities, our response shouldn't be, yeah, that makes sense. But instead, it should be more like, hang on, wait a minute, what did you just say happened? Hang on, hang on just a second. What did you just say there? Run that back. That doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. We saw this last week with Zechariah and Elizabeth. A lifetime of waiting paying off for both of them. 
But they're waiting for a son and they're waiting for this predicted Messiah that, these, that this is somehow how it's just supposed to be. That's not the case at all. It makes no sense for that story to be in there. But there it is. And this week we're going to see, at least when it comes to waiting, that the exact opposite thing happens. Last week was about a lifetime of waiting. This week is going to be about the massive surprise where Mary and Joseph had not even begun to wait on anything just yet. Uh, this was uh, the most unexpected news in the history of the world. So let's read the story that we know so well, but this time remember just how ridiculous all of this is. Just how absurd this story is. It's not how it should have happened at all. It's not how you would have drawn it up. If you were God, you wouldn't have drawn it up this way. You would have done it a different way. I can almost guarantee it. Because I know I would have. But this is the story that we have. And this is the Christmas story. So Luke chapter 1 verse 26. We're going to read all the way down through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child, will be born, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So here we have an angel again. Gabriel uh, is back on the scene and announces another miraculous, unexpected pregnancy that no one, uh, that no one saw coming at all. And this time the announcement is, is even more miraculous than the last. Not just a woman uh, who, who has not been able to conceive, but a, a, a woman who is still a virgin. And Mary's reaction isn't that far off from Zechariah's. But where Zechariah's expressed astonishment kind of mixed with doubt... Uh, and that got his voice taken from him, Mary's reaction expresses astonishment kind of mixed with faith. The two aren't always that different. In fact, whenever you read these two stories and you, you put Mary and Zechariah next to each other, they sound very similar. They sound very similar, but, but, but what we see is that the angel rebukes Zechariah and, and, and takes his voice from him, but the angel will, will praise Mary for, for, for Mary's reaction. So while the two may not look all that different on the surface, what we see is that, that Mary's heart is, is ready to trust, is ready to believe, is ready to act on this news that she has gotten. Zechariah demands proof. Mary just says, you're going to have to explain this one to me just a little bit. It's not a big difference in the two, but there is a difference. And nothing about this scene makes sense. This angel shows up to bestow the proclamation of all proclamations. But he doesn't do it with fanfare. 
He doesn't do it with trumpets. He doesn't do it loud so everyone will hear, but quietly. To someone who's essentially an anonymous woman from a, a, a small, middle-of-nowhere town. Some country town that no one has any respect for. If a king is coming to earth, if this king is coming, you'd expect a royal announcement. This is the way that, that things would have gone out in the past, is that whenever a, a prince is born, whenever the, the, the son or daughter of a king is born, what goes out from there is announcements to all the towns and all the, 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 the country and all of their territories where they're at, and the, and the whole kingdom, there would be a royal decree that would be read, trumpets would be blown, and everyone would celebrate, this is what has happened, this is the, 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 the great thing, celebrate with your king, celebrate, O oh, oh, oh kingdom, over what has happened. But this royal announcement doesn't follow any of those things that we would expect. It doesn't show up to the big city with the big announcement. It shows up to the small town. And it comes to a woman, which is remarkable enough in and of itself that this announcement doesn't come to the entire nation or the entire kingdom or the entire city, but instead it simply comes to one person. After all, this is God coming in the flesh. Again, this story is so familiar, we can forget that, that this is not how it had to happen. If Jesus came and the king is coming for the first time, God coming to dwell among his people, it would make sense to have a proclamation that everyone knew and everyone heard. This is God coming in the flesh. But it's made to one person. And even more so than that, it's made to one woman. And this is a, scene, this is a theme that you will see play out over and over in Luke's gospel. Women and then other people that have no influence experiencing the miraculous work of God and playing an integral, an integral role in the plan of God. This is what Luke does all over the place. We're going to talk about the role that women play all throughout this gospel. And we'll do well to note the, 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 the importance and, the, and kind of consider the importance and, the, and, and the, the role that women play in this narrative as we go through this. And as I said, the Christmas story is kind of the, 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 the gospel of Luke in miniature. And so we see this here. So all this to say that Mary is one of the least likely people to be chosen for this task in this moment. One of the least likely people to show up in our narrative and our story. At least from a, a, a publicity and a credibility standpoint. If you want to make it known that the king is coming and that this child is coming, that, that, that God himself is coming to the earth, you don't go to a, a, a woman in a small town with no power, with no influence. But that's exactly how God has chosen to do this. No royal throne or ties, no influence, no power, nothing of note, nothing that would make her stand out, nothing that would make us say, oh yeah, of course Mary would make total sense. But this is how God chooses to work. It's popular to compare Zechariah and Mary's reactions, as we talked about earlier. And I'm sure that Luke writes the stories in a, in a couplet. Again, another thing we will see that Luke does a lot, kind of putting two stories together that, that kind of serve to, to tell the, the, the same story. 
Uh, and I'm sure Luke put these together to kind of draw that comparison. But I like to compare Mary's reaction, not so much to Zechariah's, but to that of Moses. When he comes across another divine messenger, this time a burning bush, not an angel. But do you remember what Moses' reaction is whenever he comes before the, the, the burning bush? He comes with all these objections. He says, but God, who are you? Tell me your name. Tell me who you are. And surely, God, you don't want me. Surely you don't want me to be the one to do this. You don't want me to do it because I, I, I stutter. And I failed so many times before. I can't speak well. I'm not going to be the right one to, re, to, 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 to lead a revolution. God, I don't think you want me for this. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced you've got the wrong man here. I don't think you want to do this. But what is Mary's reaction? She simply says, tell me how this is going to happen. Angel, tell me how this is going to happen because I've got no categories for this. Everything that you've just said blows my mind. So you're going to have to tell me how this is going to happen. And I'm going to have to explain this to Joseph. So make this explanation good because this is, this is going to be weird. But then she says, but I am your servant. And I will do, she says, let it be according to your word. That's it. That's it. She doesn't flinch. She doesn't bail. She doesn't balk. She doesn't complain. She doesn't say, are you sure you got the right person? I'm just a, a, a peasant woman. Are you sure you've got the right person? I'm just, I, I, I'm just a nobody from a nobody town or from a nowhere town. I, I, I don't think you've got the right person. She doesn't say any of that. Now Moses did have the royal ties, remember? Moses had been brought up in Pharaoh's house. Moses had all kinds of reasons that it would make sense to choose Moses. Mary had none, but Moses balks where, where instead Mary says, just let it be according to your word. She says, all right, let's do this then. Let's roll. Whatever you say, I'm in. Let's do it. And the song asks, uh, Mary, did you know? And it's really popular to, to kind of talk about how, how that, that, that song asks this question. But it's like, oh, yeah, obviously she knew. The angel said, well, you know what? The angel didn't say everything. And, and, and Mary didn't demand everything. She says, give me an idea of what's going to happen here. I need to know just a, a, a little bit. And so the answer is she sort of knew. She knew a little bit. But she didn't really ask a whole lot of clarifying questions. I can promise you that if this was me, I would need to know a little bit more. I would need to know, like, give me some more details here, please. Can you write this down on a piece of paper for me so that I can go over this? Because I need to know how this is going to work. I need to know where we're going with this. I need to know how to explain this to others. Can you please explain to me in detail what's about to happen? And I know that that's how it would work because that's how I work with everything. Because that's how I work with anything that I feel like God is calling me to do. I say, all right, God, I'm in. But you're going to have to explain in detail everything that's about to happen. I need to know everything. I need to know that it's going to be safe. I need to know that I'm going to be safe. I need to know my family's going to be safe and taken care of. I need to know all of these things. I need to know where we're headed with this. I need some, some security and some, some comfort. I need these things. I need to know what it's going to look like five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. God, if you'll hand me all of that, then I'll find out if I'm on board or not. That's how I work. And it's probably how most of you work. Because it's the rational way to approach things. But that's not how faith works. Faith isn't rooted in, 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 in so, so many details in the future that it removes all doubt. Faith is rooted in what God has done in the past 
And that gives us confidence for what he will do in the future. Our confidence isn't based on the details of the future, but on faithfulness in the past. That is the way faith works. And so we'll see that and how that plays out for us here in just a few minutes. And I just wonder how different our spiritual lives would be here at Providence. Mine and yours. How different our spiritual lives would be. How different this church would be. How different our families would be. How different our marriages would be. If we all lived life the way that Mary does here. Well, we said, I don't know the details. I don't even feel super secure in anything that you've told me. I don't know all the details, but I know enough that I'm not going to be able to figure out any of this stuff on my own anyway. So sure, God, I'll do whatever you ask of me. Instead of, God, tell me everything that's going to happen. Give me full security that you're going to be there with me and that you're not going to bail on me. And if you'll do all of that, then I'll be on board. But instead, if we said, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm on board. I'm going to approach my marriage this week, not by saying, God, if I do this and this person responds and my spouse responds back this way, then, 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 then I'll know that you're with me. Then I'll know that this is going to work. Then I know that we've got a good strategy here. But instead, you say, I know that you've called me to sacrificially love my spouse. And so regardless of what happens and regardless of the details of how it's going to work out, I'm on board here. I'll do whatever you ask. How different would your marriage be if you approached it that way? How different would your life be, would this church be, if you showed up and said, I'm all in? Now, what's the question? What do you want me to do? And that's exactly how Mary works. This is all we have in this initial announcement of Jesus' birth, but if we keep reading, uh, we, we, we get more. We get uh, so much, which, which in, incidentally, it, it's interesting, again, kind of pointing out how Luke works here. Almost everything that we know about Mary in connection to the Christmas story comes from Luke's gospel. If you read in Matthew, Mary, I think, gets one mention, maybe two in, in Matthew's gospel. She's just barely present in the narrative. Almost everything comes here from Luke. It's just how Luke works. So let's keep reading in Luke chapter 1, verse 39, a little bit more about what happens right after this announcement. In those, day, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed aloud, <clears throat> she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is he who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So here we have these two women front and center in the narrative for the birth of the Messiah. There's a lot of ways an ancient writer at this time might have introduced a would-be revolutionary religious or political figure. But two women, two pregnant women talking with each other is not on that list anywhere. 
No one would have chosen this way to introduce the Messiah onto the scene. What seems like kind of this meaningless banter between the two, but, but this, this banter then frames for us who Jesus was and, and the role that he is going to play. This talk between these two women sets up for us what is, what is about to happen and what is coming after that. It frames the, the purpose of why Jesus was coming. And it shows the faith of these two women who have to be in at least some measure of shock at this point. At, at, at this point. Elizabeth's story here with, with, with John is incredible to this point. That she would be pregnant with John, it is incredible to this, to, to this point. But then Mary shows up, and Mary's story, well, that tops Elizabeth's story. John's story is uh, amazing. John the Baptist, his, his story is amazing. But Jesus' story one-ups John's story in every way. John is born to a couple that could not conceive. Jesus is born of a virgin. Both miracles, Jesus's is greater. John is born of a righteous priest and is born as a righteous priest and great prophet. Jesus is the only begotten son of God and a ruler from the line of David. Jesus' story is greater. John is to prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus is the way. Jesus is greater. John's story is powerful in its own right. If that's all we had, it would be an amazing story for us to read. But in every way, it serves as a shadow and a pointer to a greater story. So it works with us. So our lives work too. John responds to the voice of Mary while he is still in the womb because somehow he knows Jesus is near. Somehow he knows that the Lord is there. His life literally from the womb was for nothing other than to point to Jesus. So it is with us. We are called to live lives that point everyone around us to Jesus. That is our calling. Our story is a great one. Your story is a great one. Even if you carry so much shame and you carry baggage and you carry all these things in your past, your story is still a great one. Scripture does not dismiss the power of your story at all. But our stories are all meant to serve a greater purpose. To point our own minds and our own hearts to Jesus and to bring others along with us. In every way, Jesus is greater. Take just these two realities that we have looked at here this morning, and it would be enough for us to walk out of here this morning with more than a challenge. To put our yes on the table and to trust God no matter how crazy the assignment, and then to spend your life not building your own kingdom, but constantly pointing to another king and a kingdom, the kingdom of God that is not of this world with every fiber of who you are, with every piece of your story, with every part of your life, constantly pointing to him. You take those two things right there and you have the shape and the purpose for your life. But there's one more thing that I want us to see this morning. There's one more thing that I want us to draw out of this story this morning. So this is Luke chapter 1, verse 46. <clears throat> so in context here, this, this is known as Mary's Magnificat, and it is, uh, it is the, 
It is a song, but it's also like part of the conversation between her and Elizabeth. And in verse 46, it says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from the thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has, filled, uh, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and then returned to her home. So here Mary is speaking, but, and, and, and Luke kind of frames this as part of this conversation with Elizabeth, and it is remarkable of what is said here by Mary. Now, some of you that may have grown up in a, in a Catholic background, may, may, there, you may be used to teaching that kind of ascribes some extra things based off of these passages, but, but simply because the, the, the Catholic Church kind of tacks on a few extra things about Mary doesn't mean that we should, we should back away from what the text actually says. And it does say that she is, she is blessed among women because of the role that she gets to play in Jesus' story here. She is, she is blessed, and, then, and, and, and the reason that she blessed, she, she kind of teases out here in this song. And she takes what God has done in her current situation and then marvels at it and then applies it to, well, she applies it to you, and she applies it to me, and she applies it to the world. To us, these two obscure, powerless women are looking at their growing stomachs and the absurdity of how God has chosen to use them. But, 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 but get this, they don't, they don't turn this into a self-praise of how glorious they are and how good they must have been for God to choose them. Instead, Mary chooses to celebrate that God has blessed her in this moment he has blessed her in, in this moment and then recognizes that if God can choose her, then that means God can choose anyone. She chooses to, 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 to step back and instead of saying, I am great because God has chosen me, she steps back and says, because God has chosen me, that shows that God can choose anyone. If he can choose her humble and powerless, then the powerful had better learn to sleep with one eye open. Because he's going to upset the systems that put the crowns on their heads. And he's going to change the calculus for what it means to live in this world. Because the crowns on the, the, the head of the powerful will not last forever because their kingdoms will be gone. And at some point they will come down from their thrones based on what God has done. And it will be those that are humble that will ascend. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Mary says, I know this to be true because this is what God is doing in my own life right now. This is the Christmas story. The Son of God coming to dwell with his people. The King of Kings stepping down from his throne in order to be placed in a manger. God blessing a young girl from a nowhere town to be the one that is entrusted with the king of kings. It makes no sense. None. 
None of it, none of it lines up with any kind of calculus you could have come up with on your own. None of it makes any sense, but praise God, this is how God works. I'm telling you, we say these things so much, we read these stories so much, we know them so well, they've lost all of their shock value. They've lost all of their power in so many ways. We say things like, God dwells with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. The king of king is born the king of kings is born in a manger. Mary, the mother of Jesus. We say these phrases like they're normal and like they've always been true. But they should knock you off your feet. They're so absurd. They're so unexpected. None of these things should be real or true, but they are. That is the Christmas story. Which is why we can believe other things too. Like whenever Jesus says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. And things like, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back for you. We can believe those things because the other things are there too. That's what the Christmas story teaches us. It teaches us to believe the things in the future because of what has been true in the past. Some of you need to see your Christmas manger scene on your mantle and let it remind you of other things that the gospel writers tell us that seem to be crazy, yet they are true. You need to be able to believe that God has not left or forsaken you. And you can believe that because you can believe that, 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 that an angel came to this uh, anonymous girl from this forgotten town and changed the world. You can, you can believe hard to believe things. And let's, let's just be clear. The Christmas story is hard to believe. But you can believe hard to believe things because we know the truth of the unbelievable things. You can believe, you can believe that God has not forsaken you because he did not forsake Mary. You can believe that he has not forgotten, forgotten you or forgotten us or forgotten his church and that he will come back for us because he did not forget Mary and he did not forget Elizabeth and he came to find them. I say this all the time. Our faith is not a blind faith. It is not a wish upon a star kind of faith. It is not a just throw it out there and hope it happen, happens. It is a faith rooted in story after story after story of a God who works in ways that we would not expect, that we would not draw up, and that we would not write for ourselves. And because we have so many of these stories, we can believe and have faith today. We can believe so many hard things but perhaps the most difficult things to believe might not be so much of you shall be with child and he shall be born in a manger. But it is things like he is not here, he is risen. Or perhaps the hardest thing for any of us to believe, your sins are forgiven. We say these things like they are given and they were always bound to be true. Like the resurrection of Jesus is almost expected and like the forgiveness of our sins is just normal course of action. 
But he didn't have to do any of this. Christmas, Easter, forgiveness, care, presence, walking with us, being with us, pursuing us, running us down, drawing us to him. He didn't have to do any of those things, but he did. None of it should be here. None of it should be here in this book. None of it should be here, but it is. It's all absurd. All of it. And yet here we are singing songs like joy to the world. The Lord has come. Praising God just like Mary. That even though it should not exist, it does. Praise God, it does. You know, that little phrase, your sins are forgiven. Such an easy thing for us to say in the context of church, but, 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 but Jesus acknowledges how hard it is to believe that little phrase. I want to go to one story that we'll look at uh, later here, really, in just a, a few weeks. We'll look at it in a lot more detail, but I just want to point out one little part of this story. So turn over to Luke chapter 5, just a couple of chapters over. Luke chapter 5, verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on, a be- bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the, the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So much that we could say here, so much that I could draw out of this this text, but we'll save that. We'll save that for another sermon. But for today's purposes, let's just consider what Jesus' main point is here. He's telling the Pharisees they may like to go around judging people for their sins, maybe even pronouncing a forgiveness upon people that keep the the law in just the right way. And he's telling the, 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 the Pharisees, they may like to go around saying your sins are forgiven, but in reality, they have no power to do so. They are imposters and they should not be trusted. Jesus, however, doesn't just say things, he actually does them. So he does the physically impossible. This is, this is the point that Jesus is drawing us to here. He does the physically impossible. He heals the man who could not walk, who was paralyzed. He does the physically impossible to prove he has the authority to do what without God is spiritually impossible. You see, our faith is not built on a blind hope in the improbable or even the impossible. Jesus says, look, I'm going to heal this guy, and he's going to get up and walk. And when I heal this guy, what you're going to know is that I'm not just saying words. I actually come with authority. And so in this case, Jesus' miracle is used to authenticate his spiritual authority that he brings. 
And so he says, I'm going to heal this guy, and he's going to get up and walk. And whenever he gets up and walk, what you're going to need to know is that I can heal him physically, but even more than that, I can do what you could never even come close to doing. I'm going to heal him spiritually too. Our faith is not built on this blind hope that's improbable or even impossible. Christmas is, in many ways, serving the same purpose as Jesus healing this paralyzed man. It shows us that if God can do the physically impossible in sending his son to be born of Mary, then we can, we can also trust him to do the most impossible but the most glorious news ever. To say to us, to say to you, and to say to me, your sins are forgiven. That's the story of Christmas. Now we haven't got all of that yet in the story, but that's, that's what he's doing here. He's doing a physically impossible thing to show that he can do what is spiritually even more ridiculous. He can forgive us. He can forgive us our rebellion. He can forgive us of our our sin. He can forgive us of all the ways that we have let him down. And that is the most absurd part of the story of all. That he's not forgotten us. That he's not turned on us. That he's not just given us over to his wrath, but instead he has come for us. And that we can trust him with that most glorious news. Christmas is a testimony to the truth, the power, and the hope of the gospel. Not that God might do it, but that he has done it. That's what we sing, and that is the joy that we celebrate on this third Sunday of Advent. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, I pray that you would remove our familiarity with these passages, with these stories. That you would take them out of our, um, our kind of collective consciousness of, of just everything is as it should be because this is how things, this is what we talk about at Christmas, and instead you would place it squarely where it should be with wonder and amazement. Exactly how those walked away, how this paralytic got up and walked away, and everyone walked away with wonder and amazement. Father, I pray that we would do the same. That every time we see that manger scene on our mantle, it would be with wonder and amazement. Not just that you can do the physically impossible but that you would do what is spiritually impossible and you would forgive us of our sins. Father, for those in here this morning that don't know the power of that forgiveness, for those in here that know the Christmas story, it's just a good story that makes you feel good, but they don't know the power of the gospel and exactly what it is that you're doing, Father, I pray that you would convict them this morning, that they would know their need for a Savior, that they would move even this morning from Christmas to Easter, From the birth of a Savior to to Good Friday and then to Easter Sunday. Draw our hearts to that place. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.